Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. Good morning, everybody. I have on the line with me uh, dear brother and saint and great Bible scholar, Phil Scranton. Uh, Phil is the author of a couple of books, uh, Samson, Keeper of the Gates, and Journey to and Through the Second Death. And Phil has been a guest on our podcast in the past, and uh, he's actually our first repeat guest. So welcome back, Phil. Thank you, Bill. I'm happy to be here. Today, I wanted to look at the book of Ephesians, and I know you've really done a lot of study on this book. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to ask you questions on um, the book and how the book is laid out and the importance of the book. And, you know, we'll we'll just have a dialogue if that's okay with you. Uh, that sounds great, Bill. Okay, so in the book of Ephesians, <clears throat> we know the Apostle Paul is the author of this book. So what's the significance of, of Paul, and why does he begin the book with the idea of God's will? Well, that's a very good question, Bill. It's interesting if we were to look at all of Paul's letters, uh, at least half of the introductions in his letters speak of his apostleship being related to God's will. And I think the reason that he does this is because of his own personal history. He was a Pharisee, uh, a very conservative Jew, and he was persecuting the church, which now, through the great change that took place in his life in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, he is now an apostle to the nations of the world. So he is turned from the persecutor into a preacher, and uh, it's just an overwhelming change in his life. And when he says that he was an apostle by the will of God, he's saying, look, this wasn't my idea. God stopped me in my tracks and turned me around uh, and sent me on a new direction, and I've been overwhelmed with the tremendous news of this gospel uh, that he has given me. You know, you know go I, ahead. if you don't mind my asking this question, why does Paul then, is that why Paul so often will use that phrase in his other letters as well? Yes, I think so. This, uh, it's all coming out of this same uh, aspect that God stopped him and changed the direction of his life. And, and what a tremendous thing that is, too, because, you know, as we look towards the future and have an expectation of Israel being changed, God is able to change the persecutor into the evangelist. And uh, he can do that for the whole nation of Israel in the future, as the scriptures uh, predict. That is a pretty remarkable thing, isn't it? Yes. Now, it almost sounds like you're saying Israel and the church are two separate entities. Yes, it is. 
Um, I, I'm saying exactly that. And, you know, I, I believe if we took the time to go through the book of Acts, this is something that we would see. Often in reading through a book, we, we don't try to look at the whole picture, but I'd like to, if we were to divide the book of Acts uh, into two parts, we would see in the first part of that book that Peter was really, Peter and the disciples with him were the true leadership of the church and that it was primarily Jewish and that the, the center location for everything happening was Jerusalem. But as we move through the book, the centrality of Jerusalem is lost. We go to Antioch and then we're going to everywhere around the Mediterranean and ending up in Rome. And we're having Peter's leadership being replaced by Paul's leadership. This you think about this for just a moment. We have two healings, one in the first part with Peter and one in the second part with Paul. And these were healings of men that were born lame who had never walked in their entire life. And they were transformed and immediately leaped up and able to walk and jump and, and do all these things, which these atrophied bones and so forth could never have done without a tremendous miracle. And what we see in things like this is that God is putting his stamp of approval on a change that's taking place. Peter raises the, the lame man up in the temple, and later Paul raises up a man the same way. They both did unusual miracles. Uh, the shadow of Peter passing by could heal people. And later we read that uh, handkerchiefs or aprons, pieces of cloth taken and that were Paul touched them with his hand, they were taken to the sick people and those sick people were healed. This was unusual things. Um, we have the laying on of hands to receive the spirit, which Peter and John went up to Samaria and did this. And later Paul did this the raising of Dorcas by Peter and the raising of Eutychus by Paul. Um, then we have divine escapes from prison, and there's so much difference there. Peter is taken out of prison uh, with the guards asleep and, and, and uh, everyone astonished that in the morning he was gone. Paul and Silas, on the other hand, the whole prison was shaken, and they were released and their chains fell off and they were free in the stocks, but they never left the prison. And, and with Peter, the guards were killed because the prisoner escaped. But with Paul and Silas, the, the, uh, the warden of the, or the prisoner uh, was actually saved. So we have contrast, but we also have this thing where God is showing by the things he did with these men that he was changing leadership from Peter to Paul. And the whole book of Acts shows that. So then would you say that uh, rather than being an extension of Peter, Paul is actually a separate and distinct apostle to a separate and distinct entity or group of people? Yes, I would. And this doesn't come about um, immediately. 
the first thing that Paul did upon being saved was just to to verify and to argue from the scriptures that Jesus Christ truly was the Messiah. And, uh, you know, as we think about the book of Ephesians in Paul's writings, one of the things that I would like to compare uh, just momentarily in passing, in the book of Romans, we have this idea of to the Jew first and to the Greek as well. We have that phrase, I think, about three times in Romans. Right. But when we come to Ephesians, we're finding uh, that he, that that is over and that he is really going to the nation. So there was a there was a period of development. This did not all happen just immediately and overnight, but. Uh, also, the whole nature of Paul's teaching is quite different. Right. In, uh, in Acts with Peter and the disciples, we have this constant reference to Jesus of Nazareth. And of course, that brings to mind uh, Nathaniel's comment, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, <laughs> they were preaching to their nation and saying, Jesus of Nazareth is the one who has done this. He is the one who has raised from the dead. And so the Jews really had to uh, submit themselves or humble themselves to accept that kind of a Messiah. But Paul, the whole foundation of the things he believed was on Christ. And we see the word, uh, uh, the terminology, Christ and Christ Jesus standing to the forefront and everything that Paul says and, and being in Christ was really the platform of all of his doctrine and teaching. Um, right. So no, go ahead. Then there's a number of distinctions that you would see um, based off of the idea of say Judaism and what we now know to be, Christianity as it was developed by the Apostle Paul being separate and distinct with Paul as the spokesperson for the body of Christ or the church of this present time and Peter the Apostle to Judaism in Israel. Exactly. Um, as you say, there's a whole new expectation and uh, that's what Ephesians does such a tremendous, well-rounded job of presenting to us. You know, speaking of Ephesians, one thing that really hits home when I read that book is Paul elevating us to the celestials. And, uh, you know, to me, a big distinction is that difference between the celestials and the terrestrial. How would you understand that? Well, I, I agree with you. And when Paul speaks of the celestials, he's he's speaking of a whole new expectation for those who are believers. Actually, you know, there is a line that he that is basically the the beginning of almost all of his letters as soon as you get into the introduction um he says here in ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ if we could go back to the first century with paul 
and think about what that statement meant. That statement is virtually a renunciation of Judaism. Right. If you think about Christ and the trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest saying, tell us, are you the son of God? And basically he said, yes, I am. And you will see the son of man, you know, coming into clouds and, and so forth. So, uh, and the high priest responded to that saying, this is blasphemy and he's worthy of death. So the Jewish position is that Christ definitely is not the Messiah. He is not the Lord. He is not the son of God, even though, as Paul says in Romans chapter one, that he, the resurrection from the dead designates him as son of God. I mean, there's the proof. Right. But Judaism denies that. So these letters actually start out as a renunciation of Judaism. And then he goes right on to speak about being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies or among the celestial beings. Uh, however you understand that phrase, but this is an entirely different expectation from the earthly kingdom that was prophesied for Israel throughout the Old Testament. Right, right. It's almost like the, the old Star Wars movie, A New Hope. Well, oh. we literally have a new hope, don't we? A new expectation. We definitely do. And, now, oh, go ahead, Phil. Okay, and and there's a very good reason for this. Um, in the Old Testament, we hardly ever read much that speaks about demon possession and so forth. But when we come to the ministry of Christ, we see him constantly being faced, and the disciples being faced with the demon possession. The nations of the world were under the rule of the angelic sons of God. And there was definitely a lot of this demon possession taking place in those other nations. But then we see it really creeping in in the gospel accounts. And it shows us that there is a need that really wasn't prophesied or met in the Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom, because not only does there have to be rule over a sinful humanity and a bringing of them into relationship with God, but also the spiritual realm in opposition to God has to be ruled over as well. And this really gives us the reason why there is a celestial calling. And one of the tremendous things that Paul shows us here in Ephesians is that the administration of the kingdom, as we will see it in the future, has both a celestial or heavenly part to that administration and also an earthly or terrestrial. It's one administration, but it operates in two different realms at the same time. So would you be saying then that Israel would be the vehicle God uses to deal with the physical realm and the body of Christ is dealing with the spiritual realm? 
Yes, Bill, that's exactly what I would be saying, but I would really, really want to be clear also that while Israel now is set aside as God's nation or cast off, however you would like to term that, uh, those who of the Jew, Jewish nation that believe now, they are part of the body of Christ and part of the celestial. And in the future, what we look for is a rebirth of the nation of Israel as God's people. And those at that time and, and many from the Old Testament times will be raised and they will administrate God's kingdom on earth while the body of Christ being called out now will be God's administrators and uh, operators. And that's when we're really going to enjoy this Eonian life, being alive in the future kingdom ages and participating in that kingdom ourselves. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of work to do and some glorious things waiting for us in the future. You know, I, I can't help but think, how does the cross impact this idea of of these demons and and say humanity and in the devil's place in all this well that's that's really an interesting thing and uh if i might be a, allowed to mention one of my pet peeves <laughs> one of the things <laughs> that, that irritates me most is that in evangelical Christianity, uh, in which I was uh, very much involved for many years, you hardly ever hear a sermon on the ascension of Christ and what it means. Why is it so important? And uh, the most quoted passage from the Old Testament would be from Psalm 110, speaking about Christ seated at the right hand of God. Right. I mentioned a little bit earlier that the angelic sons of God were in control over the nations, but Christ being raised and seated at the right of God in the heavens places him over all of those authorities. And actually, the fact that Gentiles so freely and fully can come out from under that old administration and believe and have faith in Christ is an evidence of that, uh, of his ascension and of his authority. Even though we don't see that authority fully being taken and exercised yet, this is now the preparation time for when it will be so. And the idea of the casting out of demons and so forth was just showing that that great spiritual need and that great spiritual authority was something that had to come before the kingdom could really come into being as it will in the future. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Phil. You know, when you're reading through the book of Ephesians, one thing that jumps out on reading it is the way that Paul uses pronouns in that book. So my question, I guess, is why is it important to really pay attention to Paul's pronoun choices? What's the significance here? Well, Bill, I have to be honest. That is a question 
that troubled me for years. Um, and it took me a long, long time to begin to see it. And I, it wasn't until a long prayerful study and, and going through the book word by word and verse by verse and comparing everything from that was uh, just read with what was following and, and, and back and forth until I began to see what this pattern is. Now, what we especially have in the book of Ephesians, and, you know, it was, was a time when there were so many questions. If you think about the confusion there would have been in the first century that the Messiah came, but Israel didn't have the kingdom, and and then Paul's going to the nations, and all this stuff is going on. There's a lot of questions that people had that needed to be explained, and I think Ephesians does that more than any other book of the New Testament. I think uh, so, too. So what we have in the first two chapters of Ephesians, we have two groups of people. One that Paul refers to as we or us, or he uses a possessive our. And then there's another group that he refers to as you. And the we is we believing Jews. Paul includes himself with them. And the you is you believing Gentiles. And Paul interchanges these. And as for years, as I went through the first couple chapters, especially, I thought, why is he volleying back and forth from we to you? And <laughs> who, who is he talking to? Right. And the commentators, uh, I've looked at many, many commentaries on Ephesians and, and hardly anyone speaks of this. When we come to uh, verse 13 of chapter 1, after Paul has already been using the we consistently, and then suddenly he changes and says you, most commentators do say, well, here he is joining the Jews and the Gentile believers together. And, and that's very true. But that's about the only place in the entire book where they notice this distinction but it carries on for two whole chapters. As a matter of fact, in the first chapters, it's one time only when Paul says, I am praying for you, referring to everyone. Only that one time do we have a singular first-person pronoun, I. Right. But as soon as we get to chapter 3, we have the singular first-person pronoun repeatedly because Paul is saying, I'm telling you this, and I did this, and this is what I am, and, and he's explaining things to them. But these first two chapters continually uh, jump back and forth between the we and the you. So one thing that strikes me when we read the book of Ephesians is the idea of unity in the book. So does uh, these pronoun choices emphasize this idea of unity? Yes, they do. Uh, and actually they do this in a, in a very unique way. Um, as I said, there were many questions about where is Christianity going? Um, 
And so Paul is answering these, but he doesn't answer them just by direct statements. Instead, in a very ingenious way, he uses these pronouns to answer the questions and also to join the two groups of believers together. This comes to us as we we have to see almost something else at the same time. And that's his prayer in uh, the first chapter that starts about verse 15. And Paul prays that the believers would have a realization of God as their glorious father or father of glory, if we want to give the literal words there. And he says, if you're going to understand and realize God is your father of glory, then you need to realize three things. And the first thing you have to realize is what is the expectation of his calling? Why is God calling you? What are you going to be? And this is really the first thing he begins to explain in verse three. The calling of God is to be sons of God. And there's many blessings and and things associated with that. But we have to believe and understand first, if God is our father of glory, we are called to be his sons. The second thing, and there's three petitions here. The second one is that we would know the riches of the glory of the enjoyment of his allotment among the saints. That we would realize what it's like to be God's people with God living among us. And then finally, that we would grasp God's power for those who are believing. When we come to realize these things and grow in our understanding of them, what these things cause us to do is to realize God very personally as our glorious Father. That That's an awesome thought, just thinking about that. It kind of gives me goosebumps. Yeah. It, it's tremendous to me, too. And uh, if we go back to our question of the pronouns now, actually in the first two chapters, Paul is joining we believing Jews with you believing Gentiles together, and he does it separately in each of these three petitions of the prayer. And actually, as we go through the book of Ephesians, the entire book is a manual for applying this prayer to our lives and coming to understand it and and making it become a reality in our lives. So a quick question on that, Phil. Okay. Doesn't this prove the unity of believers? Doesn't that unity that that the Jewish group with the Gentile group prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Yes, it very much does, Bill. And it proves, in a, in a sense, also his ascension. If believers of all nations of the world can be uh, joined and united together and 
live in peace together and harmony together. It's it's showing that God's power demonstrated through Christ is actually overwhelming the power and authority of all of the angelic beings that were given authority over the different nations. Wow, that that that's really profound. Now, I know my listeners aren't going to like this, but if you want to hear more, and I'm going to ask Phil to come back next week, and we'll we'll continue this discussion. Um, and you want to hear more, you definitely have to tune in next week because we're going to get into a real in-depth discussion about the distinction between we, us, and our, and uh, develop this line of thinking further. So on that note, I trust that you uh, have enjoyed today's podcast, and we ask that you continue to study with us and really study through the book of Ephesians so you can really, really uh, participate fully in next week's podcast. So on that note, good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast. Mm -hmm.